All right, welcome to episode number one of the Unreasonable Podcast, where we talk about venture capital and all things that move the world, as well as here in Asia. My name is Hian Go from Open Space Ventures, and with me are two other unreasonable folks, Vishal Harnal from 500 Startups, now known as 500 Global, and Michael Blakey, angel investor extraordinaire, Cocoon Capital, all broadcasting out of Singapore. Good Lord, we are doing this for the first time. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you guys doing? How are you, Fishal? Feeling much better. Is that right? Where have you been? Have you been hiding out in Singapore? Have you been traveling? I've been locked down for over a year and a half now. You haven't traveled at all? I haven't traveled at all. Michael, you just came back from the UK. So how are PCR tests? Do you like them? Well, I didn't actually. No, it wasn't the UK. I was in France and Luxembourg. I decided to, to, to see the world and go to Europe. So I spent six weeks out there traveling around. I had a pre-COVID baby who I hadn't seen. Congratulations. Uh, for, thank Congratulations. You. Lovely daughter. Um, hadn't seen her for about a year and a half. My partner was like, she needs to actually know that you don't live in the telephone. Is that right? So I went over there and I did everything possible to avoid changing dirty nappies and everything else. So I had lots of work to do. But no, it was, it was wonderful. PCR tests, absolutely fine. Quarantine in a hotel. That's a tough one. 14 days. Yeah, your, 14 nose days. Is a, uh, your nose is a little red. I thought it was the tan, but then I saw your legs, right. so it, it no. can't be the tan, Michael. No, 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 no. It's like, uh, well, it makes me look like an alcoholic. Or, well, actually, my daughter says, oh, are you Rudolph? Uh, it's a look that suits you. I yeah. think I think you should stick with that one. Yeah. Right, so I've got my vodka here so I can uh, just chill out and relax and hopefully uh, not become too illegible later on. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Okay. So what's the world like outside of Singapore? Are, are we just too paranoid? I think so, yeah. I mean, walking, going around like France and Switzerland and Luxembourg, Italy, everybody's just moving around. Masks are worn by about 50% of the people. Okay, that's still quite a high ratio. America is like 5% and then they ask you to take it off. Yeah, no, no, everything's kind of normal. So it, it was weird coming from here where you have to check in and check out every time. I mean... They did kind of launch the whole, if you want to eat in a restaurant, you've got to show that you've been vaccinated. I think that's reasonable. But nobody did it. (laughs) (laughs) Since when do you think that anything is unreasonable, reasonable again? You know, it's literally like you're in Europe, you know, the French say one thing and they do something totally different, you know. So I think in kind of only about 10% of the restaurants we went in, did they actually ever ask us to be show a vaccination? And obviously, nobody accepted the Singapore vaccination oh. app. Oh. So they only accepted European ones and the one on the NHS. So how do you do that? So I just said, look, it's, they're looking for business. They're not going to, they can say, well, can you just show us something which makes it look like, even if we can't scan you, if we get busted, just show them that. Obviously, it, this was this was all in because I don't really speak very good French and they okay. didn't speak very so good English. So they're following the, the law in spirit, but not necessarily the letter of the law. Exactly. Whereas in Singapore, if you wear the uh, wristband on your leg, someone comes and tries to cut off your leg to put it back onto your wrist. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That sounds reasonable, but this is the unreasonable podcast. Exactly. <laughs> I think uh, I think we need to do a, a bit of introduction, and I'll give a bit of introduction as to who these wonderful human people are. First question is Vishal. When did I? When when did we first meet? Do you remember that? You and I. Yeah. Hmm. That's a good one. At your office, your old office. Oh. Oh, where you were really excited about the Rotimatic machine. Oh, was that Block Seventy One? Was that the no, old JFD no, office? No, 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 no. This was uh, Antiang. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. I remember that. And then this guy. You're Hien, so handsome. Basically, thank you. You can't keep you saying that as a brown distraction. Shoes. You these wonderful I? brown loafer shoes. You still have them? They were so cute. Actually, no, they're so gorgeous. He and you do yeah. worry me that yeah. you actually remember, I remember that after like remember five this. years. You remember what no, shoes I just, you were wearing? Like, you I give quite a striking first impression. I think that's what it is. It was, well, your shoes and do. I, if nothing else does. <laughs> that's for sure. Can't so remember is so excited about this roti matting machine that he has in his office, mm-hmm. but the way he's using it is completely left field. What I'd say unreasonable, mm-hmm. which is he's ordering chicken rice from Maxwell Food Center taking the chicken off the rice, putting the chicken inside the rotis coming out of the roti matic and saying, dude, you've got to try this. It's the best thing. 
Okay. Now, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. You know why? Because I was trying to increase the total addressable market of the roti <laughs> for me. No, I remember that. I remember that. And I was like, what a strikingly handsome, good-looking human being. But it turns out for the viewers that Vishal, you know, maybe you give a, a bit of an introduction to 500, is, is, you know, running one of the best, I think, uh, global startup uh, seed now growth. Uh, explain yourself, sir. I don't even understand what 500 Global is nowadays. Well, the best way to think about it is that we invest on the philosophy that talent and opportunity are present all across the world, but access to capital and expertise isn't. So for the last decade, over a decade now, we've been investing in markets all across the world. And when I say all across, I mean every single continent, Africa, South America, Asia, Middle East, you know, Southeast Asia, Europe, Australia, Japan, Korea, everywhere. We've been investing across markets all, all across the world. And what we specialize in is a strategy of leading with seed, which is we start by investing at the early stages into companies, usually at seed, and then we work our way up that entire chain. And we're trying to find more and more ways to be valuable to founders. So in the last uh, decade, we've invested in about 2,500 companies across 70 different countries. In Southeast Asia, where my partner and I built 500 Southeast Asia, We've done about 250 companies just across these markets in the early stages. And it's funny, I, Hien Wen and Michael, all three of us were investing in this ecosystem just when it was getting started. And there was no real thing as VC over here. You could fit everyone into this, into this office who was participating in the ecosystem and look at where things are right now. Yeah, no, I think that's why it's very interesting. I can't believe it's only been five years. I think I've known you for like, a, I feel like I've known you for a decade. I, I feel like I've known I, you I feel for like a you're decade. a brother, which is why you're here. And you're going to be here for every every week. And if you're not here, we'll have to get somebody else and he won't be as good or good no, looking as you. No, yeah. no, this is, uh, And you won't do well on CNBC. Far short. <laughs> Definitely not going to do well on CNBC. Michael, when was the first time you met? 2013. That's right. Yeah. I remember that origin story, but then who introduced us? Nobody introduced us. I was over at JFDI's offices, which was the no, accelerator. That's not true. Eleanor Segal introduced us. No, she never. We found out afterwards that we knew Eleanor. You just together. turned up at JFDI. I just turned up at JFDI. I thought I convinced you to go sit at JFDI. No, no, no. You convinced me to take my now business partner's desk because he wasn't there. Oh. Remember Will Klipkin and his uh, royal chair, his throne from Angelgate. Okay. And because uh, I was fascinated by this guy who claimed to be a VC, but he only spent all of his time playing with his uh, remote, remote control, control cars. cars. I, yeah. I didn't know that's how you pronounce his surname. This is the first time. Clipkin. Clipkin. Yeah. Clipkin. Yeah. You didn't know that? Yeah, no. Actually, I didn't know that. Either. Yeah, I yeah. just I keep. Oh, that's that. I, I would never take my pronunciations of names. <laughs> He's like, I know this guy's my partner for the last that's decade, the, but. But I may not know how to pronounce his last name. Call call him him. <laughs> but he might he, he, he might just take pity on me because I destroy everybody's name. So he's never and I don't you don't really go around and say clip and I say this is Will. He's somewhere right now sneezing and tripping over himself as we keep massacring his <laughs> Okay, <laughs> back to the story. Why did you come to Singapore? I think I came to Singapore I because my background beforehand, I've been in the US, I've been gone back to the UK, have been a full-time kind of early stage investor for about 13 years. I always wanted to challenge myself. So I didn't, I, I kind of wanted to kind of like spread my wings and do something in a different market. Going back to the US, I thought was kind of been there, done that. I thought I didn't know really anybody in Asia. So I flew out here with one of my portfolio companies, which we then sold. I had two names, one which was uh, Hugh Mason, who ran JFDI. Yeah, so I course. went there and he's like, oh, I'm so you over. didn't know what you were doing. I, I just came, I'm just, <laughs> look, I'm one of those people that jumps and then figure, make, make, make it, that's how my whole life so has you, been. you're one of these people that do ready, fire, aim. That's yeah. what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's fair because I think we didn't really know what we were doing as one. But no, I mean, look, it, I, I always say like, if you overthink, like if anything you do in the startup world, if you overthink it, you ain't going to do it. Sometimes you've just got to kind of jump in and you, you figure out how it's all going to work later on, which is kind of like how Cocoon came about, you know, like 500 had a plan. So how did you guys come up with the name Cocoon Capital? Well, our first one, our first name, I won't even say what it was, but it was rejected by uh, Accra. Rejected Capital. Reje it was rejected. They, they wouldn't accept the name of it. So we had to come up very short time. And my first daughter's favorite book was The Hungry Caterpillar. Ah. which you kind of eat, spends the six days of eating and then a last day kind of gets in a cocoon and then comes out. 
and it comes out of a cocoon. So I thought, fantastic, that's what we do. We, we invest like, like 500, we invest in startups at very, very early stage and we take on a, like a really hands-on approach and, you know, comes out as a beautiful butterfly. So I was really proud about myself. I went, you know, and I, I went and pick up my kids the next weekend, I was talking to my ex-wife and I said, you know, we've got a new name for our fund. It's called Cocoon Capital because of the whole, and I gave the story. And she was like, well, you're a fucking idiot then. I was like, I was like, what? You know, butterflies come out of chrysalis. Moths come out of cocoon. Oh, and I was like, I was like, yeah. I was like, no, no. But it says in the hungry caterpillar. And she's like, you're really going to trust a children's book. Eric Carl is a very rich man. He wrote one book. Yeah. So I believe. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm with you. I yeah. think I think uh, butterflies come out. <laughs> this is the ex-wife, right? This is the oh, ex-wife. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> hey, uh, Vishal, both of us have ex-wives. You're not even married yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hurry up. Yeah. I'm We've, learning. I'm learning. Collecting data points. Just, just get married to someone and then just get divorced. And that way you can come and hang out with no, us. No, no, no. But he's got to have the kids. Like, you've okay. got to remember this. Like, we're supporting... Singapore here, we're, 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 we're kind of adding to the birth adding rate to the, and adding to the birth weight, you know, it's maybe some extra times than we expected, but it, we're kind of getting It's important now, we've lost 4.1% of our population over the last year, so we've definitely yeah, we're, we're gonna, make we're, up for that. We're, 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 we'll make up with it, you know. So I've been asked to ask Hien to introduce himself because he's dying to speak about himself. So Hien, please. No, that's a terrible introduction. <laughs> 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 I, I've, I've never, I've, I've never, you know, I've known, I've known him since like 2013. Yeah. Not once have, has anybody actually asked him to introduce himself because he's more than happy to tell yeah, everybody exactly. else about him. Ken, yeah. please you know. tell us about yourself. I mean, I happen to be the most experienced media human being amongst all you three people, right? Which is why we set up this wonderful podcast facility that you guys just waltz in and we're doing episode number one. No, I would like to say it's because you actually have management fees. You'll, you'll find it slightly larger than kind of if our If your business one. model is broken, don't complain about it, okay? <laughs> no, I'll give, I'll give a background to all the viewers out there and all the listeners out there. Actually, there's no viewers yet, but we'll get some there. Uh, my name is Hien Go, Open Space Ventures, a.k.a. NSI Ventures, which is a terrible mm. name that we changed. I was born out of the frustration for the uh, ecosystem because back in 2013, after I ran a media company called the Asian Food Channel... I sold it and then I said, goodness, if we're not going to repeat this again, let's just be an investor. And we raised uh, some money and then we raised more and more and more. And today we now are one of the thriving Series A venture capitalists. That's what we do. My name's Hien. Remember that? I have an Instagram account where I cook pizzas and then Shane's my business partner. That's what we do. It's and Shane's the one who does work. Just, just be clear right. of that. That's you right. know, we've got the cook and we've got the worker. Yeah, I do the podcast. Yeah. And I come. Someone's got to man the kitchen over here at bar. It's, it's hard work. Mm. How, you know? how can you des describe the office to those people who are not here? Like, describe the uh, open space office, Vishal. So the best way to describe Describe the open space office is that it's kind of like a lifestyle brand where you walk in on level one and there's a lounge area and a kitchen and a deck uh, so that Ian is responsible for. So basically, and then there's level two where the work gets done. It's a posh yeah, frat house. It's a posh frat house. Well, I don't think I've ever been up there. I don't even know if it exists. <laughs> you should see my new office. It's VR. Furniture. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. a beautiful space. It's a beautiful space. Well, I'm glad that you guys want to do this podcast. I think this podcast, just for everybody out there, we've tried this once, and uh, that first version will never see, never, uh, never see the internet because it was terrible. And uh, we're going to try to do it again. And if you guys are tired about listening to what we are, I think let's now try and educate people and talk about some reasonable or unreasonable topics. Do we want to kind of like explain a little bit about what unreasonable means? Okay, like go ahead. All right, so Michael, why did you volunteer for this project? Okay, I think. We meet about once a quarter and we sit down and we talk about everything that's going on. And if you look at what the press is talking about, it's a very kind of one-sided approach and there's never really a debate. It's just one version of what's out there. And I think we're all quite extreme characters uh, with very different viewpoints. And we just kind of wanted to share the, like the debates of what we see as like the hot topics that affect, especially like Asia, what's going on, what the future is. You know, as VCs, we're kind of seeing things before they get talked about by others and, you know, giving our opinion on them. And it, people will agree or disagree. And that's what the whole point of this is, is that we can say whatever we want. We can have any kind of views that we want and we can debate and we can do it in a, in a sensible manner, which doesn't mean that 
you know, the others think we're kind of evil. Yeah, but I'll I'll challenge that, Michael. Surely there are other people, social commentators, reporters, you know, people who write blogs that can do this. Why three venture capitalists doing that? Because I think, as you said, venture capitalists, I think we are taking a, a different approach and we're looking at things in a slightly different way. And, you know, if people listen to us or not, we would still have these discussions. We're literally just taking the discussions we would normally have anyway. Fair enough. And actually just kind of saying, if I you like want that. to listen to them, we can do that. I like that. I'll, like I'll that. take it a step further from what Michael said. Totally agree with that, Yen. But if you were to, uh, the types of conversations that we're having, as opposed to social commentators or journalists, we aren't paid to do this. This is not our job. We're just three we're strong. Practitioners. We're practitioners. And we're three strong. Uh, we're three people with strong opinions about a variety of different topics. And when we sit down for our dinners and we're expressing and we're just having conversations about topics of the day, right, things that are on our mind, it's great for the three of us to have those conversations. But we said, why not invite a whole bunch of other people also to be a part of those conversations and hear what everyone else has to say as opposed to just the three of us fighting with each other around a dinner table. Yeah, no, I agree. I'll add to that. Thank you very much. It looks like this podcast is finally working. I'll add to that that I think that our voices are very important, or rather my voice is very important. <laughs> no, I all know you think that. I, my voice is very important. I'll tell you why, because I think, uh, you know, I... Uh, what, what I love now is I that you've stopped loved. deleting your LinkedIn post. That's a great evolution. Yeah. Like, now you're just proud of it. You're like... I never did. You know what? Vishal, I never now. did. I just put it out there, man. <laughs> No, but this is important, right? Because this will be a platform, hopefully, that for, you know, the 35 people who listen to it, like, uh, they will know who we are. Well, 30 of them are going to be your employees. That's right. So, yeah. <laughs> do, they, do they have to fill out a questionnaire? Uh, uh, you yeah. know, when this is... Uh, it's part of the I, just, I track like... them, and if they, if, they don't, if they don't actually listen, uh, you know, yeah. we reflect that at the end of the year. Yeah. So anyway, so that's hopefully the the the, the, gen, the genesis of this whole thing. So let's let's go to some of these topics that I have prepared, and and and, and you guys are going to comment on. And I think the first topic that has been going through, hopefully the listeners will really appreciate, is what is going on in China. And I know a lot of people have commented about it. You probably can read a lot about it. Feels like there's a lot of you know people in America and England have commented about it. We're Singaporeans. And we do have a British person here, but uh, the rest of us here are decidedly Asian, truly Asian. So from an Asian perspective, what do you think is going on in China? I'll start with the first one, Evergrande. Evergrande is blowing up. Real estate is a huge part of Chinese GDP, 30% GDP. By the way, Singapore is only 3 to 5% of the GDP. And in some ways, uh, owning a house in China is the only way people can actually save. So it's uh, estimated to be 78% of people's wealth. And yet this thing is blowing up. Uh, is China about to get the too big to fail moment? What do you guys think? Should they save uh, Evergrande reasonable or unreasonable? I'm looking at either one to take the question. Michael, go for it. Oh, I thank you. I'll lobby the easy one. I, I would say let it fail. And I don't think they will. But I, I think the, the choice very much is they've let it get so far out of control. And it's not just Evergrande. I mean, I mean you've got to kind of look at what else is going on at the same time. You know, in terms of power shortages, you know, manufacturing is cratering. They still have COVID. It's not, even though we don't hear about it so much, they still actually do that. They're, they're having to shut down. Really? Yeah. Okay, carry on. <laughs> yeah, they're now eating, they're, they're they're now eating lemurs, you know. Do you watch yeah. Fox News a lot? No, just kidding. No. <laughs> reasonable or unreasonable? unreasonable. But, and, and I would also say, you know, in terms of, they're still an important part of logistics, but if you see what is actually going on, I think there's, there's so many things that they're having to deal with at the same time. There's not an easy way that they can actually kind of get off the debt-fueled kind of property kind of bubble that they've actually the built. Cocaine it, of the cocaine of real estate. Yeah. And cheap she, debt. The cheap debt. Which, got which nobody else in the world, by the way, is currently, you know, sniffing, right? Of course, no, nobody the else Americans aren't that. doing no, that. No, nobody else is no. doing The Fed's not doing it, right? Exactly, exactly. So it, you literally kind of look at it and say, whichever way they kind of manage the situation, if they let it fail, they do a government bailout, they get yeah. somebody to buy the, it's going to be a painful. So sometimes I'm kind of of the of the approach, rip the Band-Aid off, 
let it actually happen? Will it be another like layman's? I, I've seen that kind of, is it this their kind of layman's moment? I don't think it is because I think they have a lot more control. Hold that thought. We'll get back to whether it's a layman moment. But yeah, rip it out and let's just see where it goes, right? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to give you a little bit more information, Vishal, because Wall Street Journal, and I quote, says, is China about to get a lesson in too big, too failed? The China Evergrande Group with 1,300 projects in 280 cities. The China Evergrande Group. Do you want another drink? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't mind like, a cup of that. It's fucking Why does he get the additional information? I feel because like I'm I actually did okay. fucking research. Actually, okay. let me, let me, I, I, got, it, I got information again. Okay. 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 Let's save it. Okay. Let me dive in and okay. interject in this, Michael okay. and Hien. Um, ch- I think it's the end of the. Can, can I? Can I just give you? Can I just, sure, sure, can do, sure. I'm setting you up. Sure. Set me up. Get used to this. I set you up. You're going to look great. Okay. Awesome. The China Evergrande Group, with 1,300 projects in 280 cities, has some 300 billion in liabilities, and as of today, it owes 88.5 billion to banks, with 37 billion due within a year, and has already missed payments last Wednesday. 47 and a half million. It looks like it's going to fail. Vishal. I'll give you another fact that's interesting. 90 million empty apartments in China. That's enough to fit the GDPs of, you know, seven of the largest countries. Where'd right? you get that number from? Because I got 30 to 50 million, but guess what? 40 million a month spent is probably fine. Mm. 90 million. 90 million empty apartments. I was apartments. told 30 to 50. 20% of all outstanding stock. Let's fact check. Let's, somebody, somebody, somebody's intern is okay. going to get fired. I'll okay. tell you that hey, for man. now. Let's split the difference. Let's look, FT. 90 yeah. million apartments empty in China. Derek's looking up. Let's Derek's just say 60, 70. What's your point? I'm, I'm going to stick I'm gonna stick with 90. Okay. I think it's the end of the build, build, build era in China. It's a resource allocation thing. You think about a growing economy with one of the largest populations in the world. When you have large property d- developers that are saying, hey, real estate, safe, big asset, growing population, it's only going to get bigger. You feel it and you feel that growth. What they've realized now is that it's completely unsustainable because they've built way too much. The 90 million figure is important because it's empty, unutilized space that no one is buying. I'm going to tell you that, Vishal. It's it's estimated that it's 78% of the Chinese people's wealth, right? If, if you're exactly. an average Chinese person, that's basically your savings account. But think about it in the context of any developing country, which is property is almost seen as this on the top of the pyramid of wealth. It is the safe, secure, lifetime oh, okay. but, 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 You're the Chinese but, government. Okay, go ahead, Michael. I was going to say, though, but we say that, but where else can people, in, you know, they've got the rise of the middle class. Where, where else can they invest their money? Because obviously, if you, if you say they can't do property, there's few stocks. They can only do local local stocks. Obviously, they've just banned all cryptocurrencies. So where, you know, people, if they're earning, the middle class want to do something with their money. And at this point in time, I think a large part of the bubble is, A, obviously being giving on the property ladder is, is, you know, for many of them, a generational dream. But they've got to find some way to, to actually you. park their and money. Especially the property prices have just been going up. You look like you really look stupid when you play your mahjong game and everyone else is talking about how the five apartments they have making them all millionaires in Shanghai. It's true, but even factoring that in and the middle classes need to invest, there's still way too much supply. They've just built in such an excessive way. You're describing the problem. You're describing the problem. You're not providing a solution. I'm not not here to provide a solution. (laughs) The question is, is it too big to fail? Oh, okay. That was your question. I'm answering your question. What's what's your answer? What's What's your answer? It, my question is, the time for that way of doing business is over. Oh. The time for unbridled property building is over and they're not going to build it up. So, okay, but, but you, but so you yeah. think, just be clear though, so you think that it's going to have to fail. But, but is it going to be failed or is it going to be given a soft landing by the government? Are they going to get some of the local banks to, to kind you of know, cut it up piecemeal? You know okay, I'm going to, Michael, here's my position on this. I don't know. I don't know whether what the government's going to do in this situation, but what I do know is that they're not going to allow the property industry in China to continue along the same lines as it did in the past, which Fair is enough. unbridled building. Fair enough. But that's why the, but Evergrande got into this situation because of 
I think the cooling effects, we can call it that, that they've actually brought in, which has now caused the Evergrande situation. So how, you know, because it's, it's fine. It's always easy to point out problems and things that aren't going to work. But, you know, it's yeah. always, we, can, we never know how, they, how they're going to solve it. But solve we, should have, we should have some kind of ideas and what we can kind of, ways they could get around it. Let's try and be useful. Let's, let's just say that, Vishal, you're my advisor. Tell me what to do. By the way, I'll just give you some context, right? Evergrande has revenues of 78 billion US dollars. Okay, that's around the same size as Citigroup. 74 billion is Citigroup. And we've got about 111 billion outstanding. That's from the 2020 annual report. God knows where it is. But even more interesting- It's also why a lot of people are rushing in to buy Evergrande debt. Even more interesting, other than the 111 billion that they owe, they owe 128 billion to the suppliers, the painters, the cleaners. These are people as part of that 30% GDP. So Chesson Jinping is going to need a briefing on this. What are we going to say to him? I'm going to say you should speak to Hien. What's your view? <laughs> You've been awfully silent throwing around these hard questions. And I think that's something that, you know, a lot of times, a lot of the reporters and the people don't realize that this is sometimes way too big for anyone to control. And uh, you just have to be like the Chinese government and you just have to like stop it or else it's just going to get bigger and bigger. So that's, I agree with your point. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, like if, I, if I'm trying to like, I think what the Chinese government was trying to do was right in terms of bringing in these controls. I think they just brought them all in too quickly. So uh, my, my view is, is that they've actually got to look at them and say, how can they actually, you know, the problem, they, they need to solve the problem, but they also need to kind of do it in, a, they can't just do it in one year. I, I this, this is something that you yeah. know, it takes five to 10 years to actually unwind this addiction yeah. that people have got to investing in property. And then also bring in alternatives, whatever it is, opening up uh, to invest in other assets yeah. or whatever it is to actually make it happen. But I think they've just come in and they've taken a sledgehammer um, to something that actually could probably be... Let's see, right? I don't know whether they're sledgehammering it. They just saw that they're now trying to break it up and restructure it. And they're obviously trying to orchestrate a soft landing. But I think that's the whole point, right? The but Western media is calling this like a Lehman moment. This is not unfettered access of like free markets is going to just... Yeah. The Chinese government, by definition, yeah. has the ability or wants to actually control the situation and they're orchestrating it. Now, whether they're going to land it or not is probably better than the Americans in 2009. Oh, I they just like, yeah. totally blow this thing so up. I, I think the best way to look at this here, is, and Michael, is if you take one level of abstraction higher and don't just look at Evergrande in the context of property in China and instead look at it in the context of control over the Chinese economy, whether it is tech, whether it is crypto, whether it is property. So I think that what is happening structurally is more authority and control being exercised over every part of the economy. And Evergrande is a perfect inroad for the government to now exert that same degree of control and crack the whip on yet another large segment that is uh, propping GDP in China. Okay, that's what I think. But is they happening. they want common prosperity. They they don't want, you know, billionaires ruling. You know, they they have seven hundred billionaires in China. I mean, Xi Jinping is probably very embarrassed that they have more billionaires in China than they have in America right now. They they truly want to actually, you know, move the needle back to socialism, which I personally think is possibly a good idea rather than rather than unfettered capital and capitalism per se, right? I agree. I don't disagree with that. Oh, but Ian, so a question for you though is, how do you think it's going to affect Southeast Asia? You know, we're based in Singapore. Obviously, you know, uh, coming from the UK, we always used to have the saying, you know, America sneezes, the Brits catch a cold. Totally. <laughs> um, <laughs> how, how, the three of us have had this discussion. We're having a great time, right? Yeah. Singapore, if everyone doesn't realize, already has like 300 family offices that moved in from the past 12 months. Probably like half of them are, you know, Chinese uh, folks that want to, you know, base themselves out here. Our rounds are doing very well. All these companies with just GMV getting like money from everybody, right? But actually, that's actually from the American money. So I think the great thing about it is that uh, people finally realize that Asia is not just China. And... Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that Asia is all Southeast Asia, which is also a needle that if it swings that far, we're going to be in trouble. 
but hopefully a balance in the force will come out. So I, I like the situation. But I think people who think that uh, China is going to not have a future are going to be very, very wrong. And not only in you know five years, probably in two years. I, I agree with that. I don't think it is a China does not have a future. I think it's China has a different future meant to be underwritten with a very different model on risk. And so that's what's going to be factored into the equation moving forward and investing in China. And some of that money that has been invested in China, that institutions have been allocating towards China, is now going to hunt for returns in other markets and try and see what's happening in the rest of South, like for in the rest of Asia, Southeast Asia, India, East Asia, North Asia, parts of the parts of this region outside of China. But does it mean that there's going to be this huge flight and everyone's going okay. to pull out their money? So I have done one thing which I never thought I would do. Because for those that, that know me know this, this is a very true statement. I'm a technophobe. I might be somebody who invests in technology. I might run an early stage VC. But I, I live and breathe. I swear that technology hates me. I touch computers and they break. It, it's just, it, it's, there's something that they've got it in for me. Like, I've broken MacBooks just by like touching them. And when Will, my business partner, just scratches his head and said, I've never seen this screen before. What have you done? So what I have done, finally, after many years of badgering, I actually signed up to a cryptocurrency exchange and brought some, some cryptocurrency like Amazing. two weeks ago. Amazing. Which exchange did you use? CoinHacker. CoinHacker. Yeah. You, f you amateur. Of course I'm a amateur. amateur. Why don't you use yeah. Binance or like a FTX, like all the rest of us? I'm, I'm OTC, baby. Uh, what QCP. Are you, what are you using? You QCP? Yeah. What is QCP for everybody, Vishal? It's an uh, over-the-counter exchange for crypto. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is there an app for that? No. Oh, my uh, God. WhatsApp group. A oh, WhatsApp group. Okay, that's just going one level too far for me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, with somebody on the other side, WhatsApp group holding your millions of dollars. Yeah, Shaw? I am. Oh, wow. I am perfectly comfortable with them managing my crypto portfolio for me. Okay. That's anyway. funny. Hien, what are your views on Chinese stocks? What are you buying? What's in your portfolio? I bought Alibaba when it went down and then it kept on going down and I don't want to buy anymore. And that's a very uh, tough decision for me because if you think about Alibaba, Alibaba is like, well, the last I looked at it, about 140 dollars which was around the time of his ipo and to think that alibaba hasn't grown in the past six years is kind of like a stupid thing to think about but i just can't bring myself to put myself at the mercy of the regulators of china so what does it tell you about how the market is pricing chinese tech companies right now if the stock is going below there, IPO there's range. a significant uh, regulatory risk i'll tell you a stock that i have bought i have bought uh, that's in my portfolio that's still sitting down there and losing money is uh, kuaishou so you remember Kuaishou is the live streaming company. It went up to $400. It dropped to 200 It dropped to like 150 and dropped to 100 I said, there's a good price. It's a $9.1 billion company that's still loss-making, but should be profitable soon. And uh, it's 25% of the price. I bought it at 100 at uh, 86 Phenomenal. What a drop. <laughs> so how far away do you think we are from the bottoming out? I think that you want to be in the long haul. Uh, it's going to not move. It's not going to come back anytime soon. So... I'm patient, you know, just looking at the situation, I would buy more of these stocks over the next 12 months. I really would. So I'm just I, waiting for it to go lower and then I'll buy it. Well, speaking of the other asset classes, apart from stocks that Michael is really excited about now has just started trading, it's crypto. What's going on, Mike? I don't know. I think in the, in the, in the early days, whenever, Will, Will has been investing, I think you guys have been investing it for years. I thought it was a bit more like the Wild West, you know, and it still does worry me that a lot of people do not know, like one person can say something can, and it totally changes the valuation of a cryptocurrency. You know, look at like uh, Elon Musk with, with his statements that it goes up, it goes down, literally. To the moon, baby. And, and so I kind you're of just looked afraid at it. of market manipulation. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. And but also it so is like the world West. It, it's total speculation. So you can make a lot of money. You can lose a lot of money because every, what everybody forgets is when prices go up. Yeah, that's great. Lot people make lots of money. But there's people who are buying at those high prices that when things drop, lose a lot of money. Nobody ever really talks. Nobody ever really yeah, talks no about that. No one ever tells that. you I lost a lot of money. Um, no know, one tweets that. I, I, I think the only person I've never actually heard anybody say, "Yeah, I, I bought when you know." You know, with Bitcoin I mean, was at like sixty dollars, and yeah. now it's over at thirty dollars. Nobody admits to that. So for, for me, does anyone do that in venture either? No, you don't do Probably it for any. No that. one talks about that. Losses I do that. Anytime. I do that all the time. 
So Hien's, Hien's portfolio of Chinese tech stocks that perhaps could be performing better, at least his venture is better than that. I think it showed us that there's a regulatory risk and it's been yeah. priced into that stock and it's plummeting, right, because yeah. of that. Is that same thing happening in crypto or is crypto more resilient as an asset? So let's look at what's happening in China, right? With the crackdown right now, how does that affect crypto prices and how does it change your views on where this goes? I think my, my long-term view is, even though it goes against what cryptocurrency about, I think there will be more regulations around it. I think it will become more mainstream. And I think somehow they will bring bring more kind of regulations and, and controls around it. But I've gone beyond the initial impression when I was like, this is just the flash in the pan, to this is something that is going to be a part of our lives for the foreseeable future. Hien, Chinese crypto ban, what do you think? Is it gonna, how, how does something like that affect prices and is it a resilient effect that it has? Is it something that's long lasting or is it like a blip? That is a good question, Vishal. And uh, on the face of it, I thought perhaps it's because of all the, the power blackouts and they just want to make sure that uh, they don't want people to use the, the energy in, in, in China, but I did some research. China produces 7,600 terawatt hours. Uh, Bitcoin uses 110. So it's definitely not about the energy. America does 4,000 4, trillion kilowatt hours. So it's, it's got nothing to do with the energy. You know, Bitcoin actually is, I think, quite efficient. It uses 0.5% of the world's electro electricity production. So it's, it's not that bad. I think what it is, it's really, they can't control it. Uh, it's historically been used for bad shit and uh, money laundering and getting money out of the country. And they have a digital yuan. And I think the digital yuan is, uh, you know, their version of cryptocurrency. So CBT, CBT, central bank tokens. That's right. And I think what's the interesting thing. But you really thing? think that's going to work though? Yeah. Ah, well, let me give you a framework, right? Let me give you a framework. So I had, I'm going to, I stole this framework. I stole this framework from a guy. I'm going to give him a shout out. Is, is the intern right here? I, no, I, no, not the intern. He's a really smart man. David Ma over at C Capital, who was ex Hill House, a very smart guy. Uh, whenever he speaks, I shut up. Uh, he gave me this framework D P U G. Actually, he didn't give me this framework. I put it together. DPUG. You want to hear that? Yeah. Distribution, product, use case, government regulations. It is absolutely clear that you know crypto has got significant distribution. Like how many people already you know? It's estimated like 200 million people use crypto, right? Mm -hmm. And the product is really good now. CoinHako, you know, is regulated. That's why I, I, I want to confess, I use CoinHako too, right? So I just put my, it, it works. Yeah, noob. I'm a noob. But the fact that I'm a noob d doing this means that it's like, oh my God, you have to pay. There's distribution. And it's for clear. the longest time, I was like crypto skeptic. Use case, speculation, fantastic use case. There's no other use case at this point in time. So kind of weak. And then regulation is the critical thing. So you I think the P. No, yeah, the G, no, the DPU. Product, product is great, yeah. right? Coin mm -hmm. Harko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah the yeah. fact that, you know, you can download an app, like my mom could download the app, put her IC in there, and then she can transfer some money from, you know, DBS Bank. They've got a whole thing connected. I can use it. I mean, the thing is, yeah. is we're both, I think being a technophobe and being somebody who, even though I invest in it, it I, I'm still very worried about it, that I've got to a stage that I've actually signed up yeah, to a currency exchange. A I'm much like more, him can actually sign up. He, we're, it's we're a mainstream. Yeah. It's, it's mainstream. He, it's gone, he it's going is more the canary mainstream. in the wharf. The canary in the I'll take it a step further, uh, Mike and Hien. It's, it's that with Axie Infinity, it's one of our portfolio companies mm -hmm. in Vietnam, this is taking off in the Philippines Name drop. To, Name drop. Name drop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just putting it out there. It's, they are kids that are now That's familiar right. with the crypto universe. Yeah. People's mm -hmm. kids are playing And a fighting chance for a use case other than speculation. Exactly, and they're earning. Running. You're yeah. earning now yeah. through crypto. As a mm -hmm. kid, how phenomenal is that? It just, it, the adoption. So the other, the other thing that everyone talks about is, you know, um, uh, streaming and how Napster had great distribution, great product, great use case, but then, you know, regulations. regulations. And then after that, it works. So I think that, you know, it's, gonna, it's going to be adopted. It might not be adopted in the thing that we're all speculating on, but at, at this point in time, I don't put everything in there, but I kind of enjoy it. And I just think that it's a bit of a status symbol now. If you're a young kid and you've got like cryptocurrency and you go like, I do cryptocurrency. It's like, I have a social media account. I'm cool. You know, it's the whole thing. So that's the whole point. Crypto used to be stigmatized. Like William Clipkin <laughs> told me about Bitcoin when it was 1,200. I thought he was mad. 
1,200, God knows what Clipton's uh, net worth is. I'm not, I, I can't honestly say, but he's been investing since, oh, he's been buying from early days. The fact that you're and he's not here at the podcast, uh, we know his net worth. Right? <laughs> I'll, I'll, give you a better, I'll give you a better story here. I invested in crypto in 2011, was part of the Mt. Gox hack. Oh, I wow. never invested again because I got burned. That's right. It's the worst lesson. Like this Did is you a, lose this the USB thing. in the garbage truck and no, it, it no that was that was proper yes. theft. Yes, that's right. Broke the exchange security was bad. I think it was a Winkle Voss's first project in crypto. But it's different now. But have you seen but it's it? different now? But now I have it. They're terrible now investors. I use it, but have but, you seen but, the Mt. Gox uh, uh, mouse that they had on a YouTube? Is Mt. Gox still alive? No, it's but, dead. Yeah, the mouse is different now, man. Like it is. It is. No, the, that's why I've been investing. Go see a yogi. But it took me very long to get over. Fourteen the... days in Nepal. Come back and buy some <laughs> Bitcoin. But Mount the mouse. I love it. It's that it literally has. Uh, it oh, goes, the crypto mouse. The crypto yeah. mouse. You've, you've yeah. not heard of the crypto have you not, mouse. Have, how, Hien, that's the big. I'm sorry. You I'm need sorry. to do better research. You, <laughs> Mount Gox, the crypto mouse. Yeah. Is phenomenal. So basically, what these guys did, Mike, just correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, is they took. Uh, a hamster and they rigged his oh, cage I heard about this. so that yeah, it yeah. buys and sells crypto based on how yeah. it's moving through the cage. There's a monkey thing. And his portfolio is outperforming the S&P and Warren Buffett right now. Yeah. Isn't it phenomenal? Yeah, but it just shows. It. It's such a parody of life right now in the yeah. world that we're living in where there's a hamster in a cage so that's probably earning more when better returns the, when the than he has venture portfolio. When the tie goes up, all boats rise. Okay, when the tide goes up, almost right, including the, the including fucking hamster, mouse, the fucking hamster, whatever, right? <laughs> Distribution is there, product is there, use case hopefully will be there, and you know the big canary in the coal mine, which Michael has called out, is government regulations, which comes back to the point as to the Chinese don't like crypto because they don't control of it, man. Of course, they don't control. Well, I think it. most guys. I don't think it's just. It's not just the China problem. I think it's a global pro global government problem. Is yeah. That they're just worried is that you know a huge amount of money is moving, and they have no control, no visibility, and they can't and tax it. And they're not moving it. And That's not, the whole point. But it comes down to they can't tax it. They're not yeah. making any money. That's right. Mm -hmm. Nobody, nobody is declaring. Nobody knows where that. But the, that can be fixed with regulations. And right? that's what I'm saying. That, that, that's why they want to kind of regulate it a little bit more. The, the the irony of it is, I'd be happier now. You know, DBS Bank, by the way, has an account you can go open up with your private bank. Not that I have a private bank account, but you know, you can open it up. And uh, look at this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, only not that only, I have a private no. bank account. Yeah. I've got five. five. I'm part of the Pandora leak, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 my private <laughs> bank account numbers is two. Six, twelve, <laughs> and four thousand twenty. No, but DB, you can you can buy uh, DBS, which for the longest time I always talk to them, right? DBS being the Singapore bank um, says no, we're never going to touch cryptocurrency. Now you can open up an account. I would rather put my Bitcoin there because if it ever gets hacked or whatever, I lose the USB stick, I lose money. But if something goes wrong in DBS, hopefully I can just sue DBS and get the money. So they're it's credit, not, they're but credit it's not decentralized anymore. What's the point of crypto? <laughs> it just becomes another thing. This is ridiculous. So I haven't figured it out either. I've got to say, I'm, I'm on, on a side note here, and I'm loving the DPUG framework. I'm yeah. going to steal that. Yeah, I feel we need it. to give it a better David Ma. Yeah. David Ma Shout out to David crushed Ma. it. But he, he said it in four ways. that these four pockets, and he going, blah, blah, blah. And I went like, oh, the first pocket is DPU. And then I have to put, like, I'm a Singaporean, so I have to put, like, DPUG, right? DPU, which everybody wants as yeah. a venture capitalist, and then just put G. Yeah. Because it couldn't be DPUR. DPUR doesn't work. Duper. Duper. Super no. duper. I guess it works. Duper. Super oh, duper. It does. It works better with duper, yeah. Duper, okay, duper. duper. The right. duper framework. It is the first product of our podcast okay. that we will share with well the done. ecosystem. Let's fucking move on. Okay. You know, I've just come back from Europe. Uh, where I've been able to travel around quite a bit with few restrictions. And I've just got out of quarantine, which, you know, I found like personally very tough. Hian, how well do you think the government has responded to COVID? And do you think their response has been reasonable or unreasonable in terms of the restrictions they've put up? I'm glad you are destroying my political career in one fell swoop. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much, Michael, for setting up a very tough question. <laughs> Revenge they, is a they, bitch. There were far too <laughs> many skeletons in your closet here to run for politics. So this is okay, this does okay. not add anything. I here. am fucking frustrated, right? I really am, right? I can't travel. I can go out and eat. My pizza oven in here is locked down. I want everything to go back to normal. I want to go skiing, you know, because I'm a bourgeois. 
you know, that's just what I want to do, right? But um, I think from a, uh, I think from the other perspective is that, can you trust what they are doing? And I, I think there's been so much criticism, so much criticism. It's not an easy job. You know what they're doing is not an easy job. I I've been on the on on LinkedIn giving data and 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 reserving my judgment. I'll put it on the record. Open the borders, guys. Hien wants to go skiing. That's right. I want to go skiing, and, and not only me. You want to go skiing. Everybody wants to go skiing. We're a re- really really small country, so it is painful. And I literally have a countdown. I think it's like six hundred and twelve days we haven't traveled yet. So yeah, I I think. Uh, it is really painful for everybody, but more more importantly, is the question as to what is sustainable and not sustainable. And I think finally, having seen what's happened in the past twenty four hours, there's a glimmer of hope that you know the multi ministry task force is taking the front foot cricket approach and saying no, no matter what it is, we're going to open up the economy. In true Singapore style, and I can say this because I'm Singaporean, it's taken longer than I expected. There's a lot of dithering. There's a lot of memes. Uh, it's it's tough being a politician here. Anyone who thinks that there's no democracy in Singapore should really see Facebook and LinkedIn. We are a functioning democracy. So I have a lot of sympathy for them. But my opinion is let's just open up. You know, my, my I have two older parents. They're 80, 80 years old, older. Uh, they've got their booster shots. We just got to move forward. And, you know, I think the guys know that. And uh, I'm just glad that we will get there. I, I wish they would get there faster than not. But that's just my personal opinion. And I'm not running the country. So, you know, it's easy for me to say. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I agree with that. Uh, you know, I also as a Singaporean, I think I get a lot of questions from my friends in other countries about why Singapore of all places with such a high vaccination rate is so close still. And I think that, one of the big developments has been a acknowledgement from the government that COVID is here to stay and we have to find ways to live with it versus not taking an open and clear stance on that from the past. The second thing is that it's easy being an armchair policymaker, but really hard when you're, you're on the seat making decisions. And there's no way I think any government can come out one way or the other without facing criticism. But I think the reasonable view is to march on knowing this is going to be something here to stay and then finding the best way to open up, causing the least amount of damage. To you people's you should work for the multi-ministry task force. That Thank was you. totally politically you. correct. Can you just fucking Thank do you. that again and give me your real Thank opinions? You. <laughs> Thank you. Those are, those are, those are, you know, my real opinions. Don't you that, want to go skiing? I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what my real opinions are. My real opinions are that I've spent the last year being upset with the way things are right now. I used to travel every week. Thank I used you. to live I used to live in a I think that maybe along the way my approach and my attitude that this is completely unreasonable tempered over time. And I felt that if I was actually in the in the shoes of these people making decisions, yeah. it's not as straightforward it's as not it easy, seems. Isn't it? It's not easy as it seems. And so I have more sympathy uh, for the policymakers, but what I'm what I'm what I'm confident about, and I feel a lot more excited and optimistic about, is that the direction, putting aside the design, the direction that they're taking, seems to be the right one, and I'm waiting for it to open up. And until then, I'm just gonna go to Germany for a while. I'm the expat. I'm 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 the guest in Singapore, so you know. I've definitely got opinions and I've got to be careful kind of what I say, but, and also I'm just somebody who's come back from traveling. So for me, I think, and I have actually from the very beginning, I've always felt that our expectations of our government, wherever it is, be it Singapore, be it the UK, be it in the US, that it's unreasonable to expect them to know what they should be doing because nobody has ever, nobody ever thought this would actually happen even though, you know, there have been movies about it, which literally said exactly this is what's going to happen. Like, reality-wise, it's, we never really thought, I never thought that the world literally would shut down overnight and nobody would travel. You can look at it and you can say, well, that's for your own safety. I think where the frustration for me has been is just the total uncertainty. In one minute, we're going, yeah. 
we're coming out of lockdown and then a few numbers, then we're suddenly going back in yeah. again. Yeah. The government saying it's going, Vishal, going to your point, saying we're moving from a pandemic to an endemic. We've hit the 80%. It's going to be part of our lives. And I think we all kind of know that now that it is going to be part of our it's lives. It's the uncertainty. It's just the uncertainty. And, you know, I've got family around the world. I've got elderly parents. I've got a kid stuck in another country. Uh, you know, she's... What nearly? What she's twenty months old. I've only spent. I've I've, I've spent six weeks with her. No, that's real. You know, and it's not the government. The government has got to do the greater good for the the country. Most of the people in the but country. most of the people. But someone's going to pay the price. You guys, I got to say, we spend a lot of time talking about China and now crypto. But when was the last time you went out to the cinema to watch a movie? I've heard about you know James Bond's come out. Dune has come yesterday. out. Yesterday. I watched it yesterday. No. <laughs> I watched it yesterday Already? as well. Already? Yeah. Which one? Oh, did you watch James Bond? Bond? I watched James Bond. Okay, so Hien, you watched James Bond. Mike, you watched James I Bond. I watched James Bond, yeah. How, how was it? How does it compare? What was the experience like being in the theater after so long? I think for me, A, getting out was just, was just nice. Seeing James Bond, I had really negative thoughts. Like, I like James Bond. I'm not like... I'm not passionate about it, but I, I like it as a good movie. And I, I found the last couple to be relatively boring. But I I walked into this one. I thought, oh, it's going to be very woke. It's going to be right. very politically correct. Was it? Um, actually, not really. I, I, I kind of, you know, there was a lot of tongue in cheek. You know, it was just James Bond being James Bond. I think Daniel Craig is perhaps he has this look of being the blandest James Bond. But apparently he is the... James Bond that Ian Fleming had in mind uh, apparently fits the role far better than, you know, Sean Connery or Timothy Dalton or um, Pierce Brosnan or any of the other Bonds. Yeah, did you feel it was kind of... Well, first of all, I want to say that I was having a great time watching the movie. And at one of the chase scenes, a guy came up to me and said, Sir, your, your mask is down. Can you please put it back up? Because oh, like, safety. <laughs> like, there were safety officers around, and I just felt so like, oh, my God. Like, I want to eat popcorn. Like, yeah, just... wait. So you can only <laughs> Popcorn's not considered food. No, you, you can, but I wasn't. I was just, like, watching it with my mouth agape as he jumped off a cliff. And then I wasn't stuffing popcorn in my mouth. Okay. And I said, Sir, either you stuff popcorn in your mouth or you put your mask on. It's wow. just one of those two options. And I was like, yeah, okay. Slightly different experience. How does social distancing work in a cinema? It's just, you know, two people and then you okay, just... And then, yeah, and then, and then, and then okay, and you're, you're and your Richard, girlfriend. You're forgetting. Yeah. Ian doesn't do normal. He goes, gold class. No, that's, that's not true. right. I do IMAX. All right. Well, Vishal, Michael, thanks for coming. Hopefully this will be a great, great first podcast. If you're unsatisfied with this first podcast and you think we're being unreasonable, wait till you hear the second one. Thanks for listening in. Everybody stay safe. We'll see you guys hopefully in two weeks' time.